Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Terrifying Lies Podcast with music and stories by Craig Nibo. Greetings and welcome back to the Terrifying Lies Podcast. Today I want to tell you about a place where you can get the coolest t-shirts ever. I'm talking about GrimThreads.com. I've ordered t-shirts from plenty of online resources, but I think the artwork and shirt quality of GrimThreads.com surpasses anything I've found. Grim Threads offers original designs painted by master artist Dennis Doherty. I know Mr. Doherty personally. Not only can I vouch for his attention to every detail in his artwork, I can vouch for him as a human being. When you buy something from GrimThreads.com, you're buying from good people. I, in fact, like Dennis's artwork so much that I hired Grim Threads to paint the cover for my musical, Tesla v. Cthulhu. Of course, I'm happy with the results. If nothing else, go visit GrimThreads.com and check out their design based on the movie Alien 2. This is my favorite of their shirt designs. I think it would look great on you. For today's story, I'm going to lay something new on you. Getting to where this story was finished, indeed, I took a writer's journey. Many years ago, I decided to write a couple of songs about zombies just for fun. But as what happens to so many projects, the whole thing expanded. I ended up composing an entire album of zombie songs called Zombie Sing-Along. I kept the track simple, just me and guitar. After finishing the project, I thought to myself, why not compose a few zombie songs with full instrumental accompaniments? Like the first zombie sing-along album, I wanted to read and perform a story as part of the record. Again, the project expanded. Soon, the story I wrote for the record became far too long to lay within the 80-minute constraints of a CD. In fact, the story became so big that I decided to suspend the concept album and see where the story took me. I ended up with the first draft of a 150,000-word novel. That's about 600 pages. I've never taken the book past the first draft. It still sits on my hard drive waiting for me to get to work. My journey goes even further. After finishing the first draft of my Truckers vs. Zombies epic, working title Breaker Z, I jumped back into the second zombie sing-along album. I still needed a story. I rolled up my sleeves and started writing a shorter trucker v. zombie story in the same world, featuring a long hauler I called Whistler. When the second story began to run away, 18,000 words and counting, I said, enough is enough. I shelved the story and forced myself to write a third yarn for the album. Unfortunately, the third story was also too long for a single CD. I made a compromise. Break the story into four parts and compose enough music for two CDs. 
The story I'm about to lay on you spans over the second and third zombie sing-along CDs. It's called Whistler and the Children. Even better, rather than read it myself, I called in Nate Peck, a lifelong friend of mine, to perform it for you. Nate hosts an event we throw every year called the Gangrene Comedy Festival. It happens every September. I'll give you details later. I hope to see you there. Nate's hilarious. He's brilliant. You're going to love him. I now give you Whistler and the Children, parts one and two. Whistler spotted a school bus and a smattering of roaming zombies in the parking lot. He couldn't figure what business a big yellow bus had being parked there at the Overstock Outlet building. Sometimes he found bodies in abandoned cars, never the type to get up and come at you, just the kind that sit there, gaping out of the windshield with raisined up eyes. He drove his big Kenworth W900 by the bus and looked through its long bank of windows. No corpses in there, he observed. Relief. He wasn't in the mood to see a bunch of rotten kids' corpses all twisted up on a field trip to hell. Whistler made a living from places like the Overstock Outlet, and he felt good about the abandoned Bakersfield big box store. If he could find anything of value on the showroom floor or in the back room, he'd load it into his 18-wheeler and take it somewhere to make a deal. As he approached the building, he glanced up at the photograph he always kept clipped to the driver's side sun visor. A stranger had snapped the picture for him at possibly one of the happiest moments of his life. He and Brigida. His new wife at the time stood in front of the choreographed fountains of the Bellagio Casino in Vegas. They'd tied the knot earlier that day, and she had left him later that night. All of that had happened before the zombies had risen and, well, ruined everything in this great country. He still loved Brigida, and no matter how hopeless it seemed, he followed up on any lead that came his way. He'd heard from another long hauler over the radio that a woman who matched her description had been spotted in Stealth, Utah. After Whistler gleaned the Overstock outlet, he planned to head north for Stealth. It doesn't cost anything to use the mirrors. Chester Ewing, Whistler's trainer, had told him so many times back at Driver Tech. That often repeated sentence was perhaps the best lesson he'd ever learned while schooling up to get his CDL two years back and while fighting Z's all over the roads these days. It doesn't cost anything to use the mirrors. Translated easily enough into keep an eye on your six or always keep one eye open on the back of your head. It all meant the same thing. Be careful. Whistler used his mirrors to back his trailer into the loading dock. There wouldn't be any lumpers. He would have to load whatever he salvaged from the overstock outlet himself. 
He hated loading. But long haulers like him were the only ones out making a living these days. Guys like Whistler fostered the guts it took to cut down the highways and byways of the U.S. of A and glean whatever they could in their travels. And what they gleaned, they could barter away for just about anything. Creature comforts, safe haven in communities across America, good food, alcohol, women, whatever a trucker wanted. If that meant self-loading his rig without lumpers to lend a hand, then so be it. He put on the trailer brakes just before touching the rubber stops along the lip of the dock. He threw his rig into park, engaged the brakes, and dropped the truck into low idle. He settled into the driver's seat and looked out the windshield. Three Z's tottered toward him. They could have been lumpers back when they were warm, dressed in blue coveralls, their first names embroidered onto their breast pockets. He wished they were still warm. He kept a case of beer in his sleeper that he shared with anyone who helped him with a load in or a load out. But those boys coming at him had no craving for beer. It was blood they wanted. That and gristle and muscle. Any kind of human flesh they could sink their broken chip teeth into. Whistler killed the engine. He'd feel more comfortable if he could leave his rig in low idle but the smell of motor exhaust drew Z's out from under their hunkers. He could deal with three or four, but he didn't want to kick a hornet's nest up and have a war on his hands. He picked up his sawed-off pump-action shotgun from the passenger seat and laid it across his lap. He drew his 9mm from his side holster and checked the clip to make sure it held all 16 rounds. He took two additional clips out of an ammo box sitting on the passenger side floor and dropped them into his rear pocket, right next to his can of skull. He opened the door and checked his six. It doesn't cost anything to use the rear view mirrors. By peeking around the corner with his shotgun first, he followed the barrel around and checked visually for Z's that might have settled in for a bushwhack. Seeing no movement, he got out of his rig and shut the door behind him. He squatted down and checked under the rig, looking for shuffling feet on the other side of the truck. Satisfied that he was alone, he walked towards the three lumper Z's that had tottered up too close for Whistler to feel comfortable. They walked slowly, their limbs all iced up, their brains caked with rot, but there were only a few of them, and he could take them down, no problem. Whistler's cowboy boots clocked on the pavement as he approached the three lumpers. Sorry, boys, he said. For some reason, he often felt the need to apologize when he gacked Z's. He fired three times. Two of the lumpers fell backwards, their faces turned to tomato paste. The third flew away from Whistler, pinwheeling his arms. It thocked to the turf so hard that Whistler grimaced in sympathy. Four stairs led to the deck of the loading dock. Whistler kept his shotgun eye out in front of him as he mounted them and crossed to a metal door that led into the warehouse. He tried the steel doorknob, but it was locked. Things never went down easily. He drew his 9mm and put five rounds into the lock. After blasting away like a 4th of July patriot, he checked his six again. It doesn't cost anything to 
use the rear view mirrors and nodded to himself. No sign of newsies back there. With the lock riddled with new bullet holes, the door flung open easy enough. Whistler moved into the dark warehouse. Many different fragrances wafted to his nose. Paper, oil, stale water. He didn't smell the bite of decaying flesh. A good sign. He took two steps into the warehouse before he heard feet shuffling away from him. He whipped around and raised his shotgun. A little figure, no taller than a fire plug, sprinted behind a gigantic steel storage container. Was that a kid? Whistler thought. What was a kid doing in a place like this? Then he remembered the school bus parked out in the lot. The kid couldn't be cold. She had run too fast to be a Z. Whistler moved across the floor to where he had seen the little girl dash. Kid? Whistler shouted, his voice bouncing around the brick walls of the warehouse like a loosed animal. He heard giggling ahead. So unexpected and out of context that a chill trickled its way up Whistler's back and put the hairs at his nape on end. Hey, kid. I ain't here to hurt you none. Uh, I know you ain't no Z, so why don't you come out here where, where we can talk? Whistler moved around a corner and up through an aisle between two large steel containers. L- look, kid, why don't you come on out? Tell you what, I got some chocolate in the truck. Come on out and I'll give you some. A little girl came from behind a short stack of five-gallon buckets her lumpy hair all crossed over and mussed up. She wore a sundress, far from clean, and a pair of Mary Janes. Whistler lowered his cannon. The little girl's smile got to Whistler. He hadn't seen a smile like that in better than a month. You're right, pretty little thing, ain't you? Whistler said. He took a step toward her. She backed away, startled like a skittish animal. Look, kid, I... I know you're scared. You must have seen some pretty heavy stuff come down here and all, but you're safe with me. He took another step toward her. I I know there's some bad people out there, but I ain't one of them, Whistler said, and he meant it. He took another step towards her. What do you say to coming on the road with me? I'll take you somewhere safe. The girl laughed again. Her voice nothing more than a fairy's flitters. Her eyes flicked up above Whistler as she chortled. Whistler heard something rasp behind him, like the stretch of old hemp. He spun around just in time for something to hit him so hard that he backflew and slammed headlong into one of the steel storage containers. With his bell rung so hard that he lulled, he sneaked open his eyes and caught a glimpse of an old frigid air similar to the model he'd bought his mother just weeks before she'd gone cold and come after him with her fingernails and teeth. The fridge dangled, suspended from a length of steel cable. The big appliance pendulum back and forth, wagging at him, telling him, Neener, 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 you've been not cold like a wiener by a big old fridge dare. Just before Whistler could collect his wits, he saw a face youngish, framed by a mop of copper-colored hair. 
The face came at him fast, carried by a lithe, lanky body, one arm up holding... What was that? A t-ball bat? BAM! Everything went bright like the flash of a nickel bulb. Then, the lights went all the way out. Good dousing. Probably at least a gallon of ice water brought Whistler out of the depths of unconsciousness so viciously that he gasped. The stuff soused his face, blowing his baseball cap back off from his head, pelting into his ear so hard that his eardrum rang in protest. He struggled for a moment to catch a breath. A rat-sized gag of fabric in his maw kept him quiet. Held fast with a round of silver duct tape. It took him a moment to realize that he could only breathe through his nose. The splash of water made even that difficult. Gales of laughter, high-pitched chortles and adolescent guffaws broke out all around him as he came to. He opened his eyes. Children stood all around him. Some hung on shelves high above in the warehouse doors, Others perched on stacks of crates and pallets. Lanky kids with coat hanger arms and stick legs. Short, fat kids with freckles and ramen hair. Cute little girls with turned up noses and lacy dresses. Tough boys with mop top dues and board rider shoes. They all laughed, pointing and leering. Some so overcome that they even rolled on the floor holding their bellies, wiping back tears with their palms. Whistler tried to stand up from his chair, but the kids had been thorough. His wrists stayed fixed to the arms of the chair, taped down nearly to his elbows with the same silver tape that held the rat in his mouth. His legs remained fixed, bound against the front legs of the chair. He stopped struggling, knowing that it would be best not to waste his energy. He'd find a way out. He always found a way out. As Whistler looked over the children, ranging in age from around about 9 to 13, he spotted the only one of them not laughing, the girl who had led him into the trap. She held a decrepit baby doll against her chest. What was left of its clothes hung from it like an old dish towel. The doll must have come with her to the overstock outlet's door. Whistler imagined that in such a place, the kind of place that bought and sold everything from shark skin suits to silverware she could have upgraded her doll but the old raggedy must be more to her than just a toy it must be her security blanket the tallest of the kids a lanky 13 year old with kinky red hair moved out of the crowd wiping away tears of laughter with his hoodie sleeve he held a short baseball bat Probably the one that had delivered the blow that had sent Whistler to the dark side of the moon. As the kid moved across the floor and stopped a coffin lid away from Whistler, the rest of the children quieted down to wait for their obvious leader to speak. Another kid peeled out of the crowd behind the redhead, a toady wearing an ivy hat and faux leather coat, short, 
probably riding on his taller best buddy's ego. Red put the end of the bat under Whistler's chin and forced Whistler to look up. So, you're one of those truckers, eh? The kid said. We've been listening to your kind of gibber back and forth over the radio. Mostly we don't understand that stupid language you speak, but we get the gist of what you're about. Whistler moaned out a pathetic, trying to tell the kid to take the rat out of his mouth. Whistler prided himself in his patience, but the tip of the kid's bat driving into his chin chipped away at his armor. If he had free hands, he'd likely put the red-headed little cuss over his knee and womp on him like an angry daddy. Red turned Whistler's face to the side with his mini-bat and looked at the blooming wound on Whistler's cheek. It didn't take a glance in the mirror for Whistler to know that he had a big ol' shiner developing there. He figured he wouldn't look right for a box of weeks based on how his face felt. Sorry about the black and blue, Red said, but we gotta be cautious. You understand. Whistler squinted at Red, fixing him with a screw-tape glance. Nothing personal. Things are just like that these days, Red said, and turned to his toady. Ain't that right, Blink? It's nothing personal, Blink said, smiling with his mouth. But Whistler saw fear in Blink's eyes. An appropriate feeling. Little Blink should feel fear. This isn't right. A new voice spoke up from behind Red. Everyone turned to the little princess who had led Whistler into the trap. Her forlorn dolly clutched against her chest. We don't know nothing about him, she said. You didn't even give him a chance to tell us his name. Whistler began to like the little princess. She could actually reason, and she didn't mind saying what was on her mind. Shut up, little sister, Red shouted over his shoulder. You ain't in charge here. You're not my brother, Princess said. My brother's dead. Yeah, I know it. Red said, and he was killed by the likes of this here trucker, Red said. No, sir, he was killed by zombies, you know that, Princess said. Everyone went quiet. Red moved over to Princess and crouched down to her. He looked her in the eye and put his hands on her shoulders. Look, sister, I know you want to give this fella the benefit of the doubt. That's what I like about you. You you still got a kind heart in all this mess. But we can't trust nobody. These trucker types, they're mean. They, they do things to people. Things like, I, I don't want to explain to you on the count of you just being a kid. Mean like smacking him across the face with your little bat? Princess said. If Whistler could have, he would have smiled. The girl had a spark in her, that was sure. I don't expect you to understand, Red said. But we got good news now. We got a way out of here. Most all the kids gasped, looking at one another, sharing muddled glances. Red pulled away from Princess and stood his full height. That's right. You all heard me. We got the way out of this place. This trucker, he, he didn't run here. Me and Blink went out onto the dock and spotted his ride. She's a beauty. An 18-wheeler. And check it out. Red said, digging in his pocket. He drew out Whistler's enormous wad of keys, all spun together on a big Texas state-shaped key fob. Red jangled the keys. The kids smiled, some pumping their fists, 
others letting out celebratory whoops. Whistler closed his eyes and shook his head. He'd left the keys in the ignition of his Kenworth. It wasn't like Z's took driver's ed, much less the three-month course he had taken to get a CDL. He never worried about leaving his keys in the cab, but he never expected the Lord of the Flies to go looking for him. Sudden rage came over Whistler. He rocked back and forth, forcing his chair to clatter against the concrete. He raised his shoulders and dropped them. He curled his hands into claws and uncoiled them, fighting against the duct tape on his wrist. He knew he could escape, but it would take time, time he didn't have. If he could just get Red to take the tape off from his mouth, he could resolve this whole issue with a handful of words. Sure, there were some bad truckers out there. Truckers who just assume tie you up to a freeway matchstick and set you on fire to help you down the road. But Whistler wasn't one of those guys. He wouldn't harm any of the kids hunkered around him. Not even Red. If he could just speak up, he'd let Red know that they were all welcome aboard his rig. He'd take them all up to stealth with him, no problem. All they had to do was take the dad blamed tape off his wrists and the rat out of his mouth. So when do we leave? One of the kids said. The only kid bigger than Red, a toe-headed lanky freak of nature with all the brawn but none of the brains to take over the operation. Red smiled and nodded, a vaunting expression blooming on his face. Get your stuff together and meet me at the docks. We're clearing out of this place within the hour. Everyone shouted, jumping up and down, punching the air, banging buckets together, stomping, letting out visceral cries that sounded more simian than human. Whistler tried to murmur out a plea for them to take the dead, blamed rat out of his mouth so he could reason with them. But none listened. They were all under red spell, transfixed on jumping into that Kenworth of Whistler's and grinding on out of here. To where? Oz? The Emerald City? Whistler couldn't believe they'd survive so long in the big box store all alone. They must have found a cache of sea rations and water or something thereabouts, and they must have stayed inside and kept quiet. That was all Whistler could figure, because if they even set foot outside their little compound, they wouldn't last a day. The mob of kids left, trotting off into different directions, scrambling over shelves and cases, off to gather bags and boxes of belongings. Inside a minute, Whistler sat all alone in the warehouse. He struggled against the tape, knowing there was a knife in his boot. If he could just get at it, he could cut himself free and reason with Red and his munchkin following. Whistler could tell Red that there was no Emerald City out there. Only death, cold, and without remorse. Something caught Whistler's eye, and he stopped struggling. He looked up from his toil, and there stood the little princess who'd gotten him into all this mess. The girl held her decrepit baby doll against her slight body, her wild hair up in a muff, her eyes bright and clear, even in the dank of the warehouse. Whistler went still, and she walked up to him. Cautious at first, but building up nerve as she neared him. She stopped in front of him and looked him up and down. 
She explored every nuance of his form as if she had never seen an honest-to-life adult in all her days. Whistler sat still and let her probe over him. Sorry, mister, she said finally, a look of honest sympathy in her eyes. You might be a good man, all right, but it's, it's Dutchy who's got us through so far. So that was the redhead's name, Dutchy, Whistler thought. If he ever broke out of this, he'd have to teach Dutchy a lesson about the rules of hospitality. I, I know he seems harsh, but he's a good one. He looks after us now since everyone else went and died. Whistler let out a whimper from beneath the rat in his mouth. He tried to sound genuine like he meant no harm to Princess or to the rest of the kids. He looked down at his right boot and kicked it as much as he could against the silver tape. It kept his leg against the chair. Princess looked down at Whistler's boot. Snakeskin. Rattlesnake, to be specific. Whistler had found the boots in an abandoned department store back in Vegas, a town now so overrun with undead that it would be better to set the whole place alight than to try and salvage any part of it. Something wrong with your foot, mister? Princess asked. Whistler mumbled out something, a feeble attempt to communicate. Princess crouched down to Whistler's boot. She sat her baby doll down on the concrete and touched the rattlesnake skin. Shoopy! Someone shouted from behind the little girl. Whistler looked up and spotted Dutchy, pushing a cartload of satchels, bags, and cases. Princess stood up double fast, scooping her baby doll up on the way. She wheeled around and faced Dutchy. What are you doing? Dutchy asked, putting his hands on his hips. I'm not doing anything! Dutchy opened his mouth to scold her, but thought better of it. Just come on! We gotta run! I got all your stuff right here! Sue B turned around and shot Whistler a glance that said, I'm sorry, then trotted off after Dutchy, who pushed his cartload of goods towards the warehouse exit. One by one, the kids filed out, orderly, not in the mad Christmas rush Whistler expected. After the last of them left, a run of an African-American kid with sincere eyes and a bouncing optimistic gait, Whistler sat alone in the warehouse. The kids hadn't even bothered closing the steel door. Not that it would have stayed shut anyway after Whistler had taken his 9mm to the lock. As Whistler watched the door swing slowly inward, he knew it wouldn't be long before the Z's came to look in on him. They'd smell him, and then they'd come. Whistler heard the bang of somebody opening the back doors of his trailer. He heard some of the kids gawk at what they found there. Wow, look at all these guns, one of them said. He's like some kind of army soldier or something. Whistler had to get out of there or those kids were going to wind up hurting themselves. He struggled against the duct tape, rocking back and forth on the chair. He pushed at the dead rat in his mouth with his tongue, but it was useless. He couldn't break through the tape. The ground vibrated as one of the kids, Dutchy, Whistler imagined, fired up the Kenworth Paycar MX engine, 485 horsepower of butt-kicking diesel force. The kid dropped the engine into gear and the clutch began throwing teeth, grinding and spitting. Whistler hadn't ground the gear since driving with his trainer back at Driver Tech. And here he sat, helpless, listening to some chumpy kid kibble away the gearbox like a meat grinder. 
At least Dutchie had the presence of mind to know how to engage the clutch. Finally, the truck chunked down into one of its lower gears. Dutchie must have figured out how to release the trailer brakes because the truck whined as it pulled away from the dogs. This has been Whistler and the Children, Parts 1 and 2, written by Craig Nibo, read by Nathan Peck. For today's song, I give you one of the tracks from the third, and best in my opinion, zombie sing-along albums. This song features a guitar solo from fellow author DJ Butler. It also features a shredding organ solo from my brother Larry Naibo. I've played music with Larry my whole life. Back in the day, we both played in a band called Funk Toast. Larry is an excellent keys player and especially excels with synthesizers. This won him the nickname Science Fiction Larry way back in the day. To this day, on stage, we still refer to him as Science Fiction Larry. I now give you, from Zombie Sing-Along 3, We'll Need Bigger Guns. Wait a minute. 
This has been the Terrifying Lies Podcast. Please, come again. You're welcome here. <laughs>